Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Hey everyone, so before we get into today's episode, I just want to tell you about a great opportunity. You see, we've had a massive interest lately in learning a second language, and I do a lot of my language training with my very good friend, Ollie Richard. We've been friends for three or four years now, and he's been on my program, and I've been on his program, and he spoke at my conferences, and I've spoke at his conferences, and he really is a genius. His techniques for teaching languages are just out of this world. He actually makes it fun and enjoyable. He was one of the main drivers for me rekindling my interest in Spanish. And under his tutelage and his advice and using his programs, I went from really crummy Spanish to quite fluent in a really short amount of time. So if you are looking to learn a second language or maybe even a third language, what I want you to do is go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash language forward slash language, and it's going to redirect you to some of all these best courses out there in the world. And there's some special promotions going on, some special opportunities for subscribers of my podcast. So I hope you take us up on this offer and go and check it out. That's expatmoneyshow.com forward slash language to get the best resources in the world for learning a second language. Okay, let's get into today's episode. Enjoy. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe, and this is the Expat Money Show. Today's guest has been living and traveling in vehicles for over 10 years. His journey started in a self-converted camper van, and today he currently lives full-time in a 2002 Bluebird Schoolie. After spending three years in a Class A motorhome, he knew that something had to change. Today, we'll dive into his adventures traveling around North America in his schoolie and how he makes money on the road. Please welcome to the show, Chris Penn. Chris, how are you? Doing well, bud. I appreciate you having me. It's been quite the journey. I bet. I'm excited for this one. Normally, the show is about international travel, but really, the show is about freedom and alternatives. I mean, not everybody fits into the same box. Not everybody wants to do exactly the same thing. So I'm excited for today's conversation because I want to learn about your your life and your experiences and how you decided on this form of travel. So why don't we start with kind of a bit of a backstory? How did you get into this? Why did you decide RVs and motorhomes and schoolies and even what a schoolie is? I want to hear it all. Yeah, absolutely. So it actually started when I was about seven years old, I would say. I told my grandmother I was going to live out in the woods with my dogs and not pay rent or utilities. 
So I've always had that that mindset. You know, as a Boy Scout, I love being out in nature. I was working a college job at TGI Fridays. There's an interstate that runs through there. And one of my tables was a family traveling around in an RV. I was a college kid. I couldn't afford an RV. So what I did is I took all my graduation money. I, I sold my Mustang that I'd been building, all the, the supercharger. I sold the engine separate. I just parted that out. Got money from that. I bought a camper van off eBay for 1800 bucks. built some very simple cabinets and drove around with my Husky for a month or two. And once I got a taste of that, that was it. Uh, it's been an iteration of that very first van to a Class B motorhome, which is a van that's actually converted into a motorhome, then went to the Class A, which is the big rectangle type. And through the Class A, I learned about boondocking, which is parking in public land for free out in nature. So then the school bus was the next iteration of my nomad journey because the bus that I'm sitting in right now, for those watching the video, it can carry 36,000 pounds of weight. So when it comes to you know water preservation, when it comes to food preservation, I really was able to build the ideal motorhome in you know just just from scratch. Okay, so. The type of bus that we're talking about is like a traditional yellow school bus that has been converted, or this is some type of other bus that I might not know about. Absolutely. It's it's funny. When I was growing up, I was a big Mustang fan. So I could see a Mustang and be like, oh, that's a 89 Fox Body 5.0 LX. You know, I knew everything about it, where now I see buses going down the road. And yeah, it's it's the regular school buses. I'm like, oh, that's a Thomas. That's a Bluebird. That probably has the 8.3. That one probably has the 5.9 because it's, it's front engine. You know, so this this is a school bus. When I took the seats out, I was finding ID cards. I was finding Pokemon cards. I was a bunch of gum, gum. stuck under everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, uh, we we had a lot of gum in this bus. Uh, yeah, so this is a forty foot bus from oh, where's that at? It's uh, down in Florida. I flew out, picked it up in Florida, and drove it back and started converting it. Yeah, so it's just a regular regular old school bus that's converted into a motorhome. So what does ha what happens? The the school board like retires the bus and then sells them off to the private sector or how does that work? So by law, school districts have to sell buses after 15 years. Regardless if there's anything wrong with them or not. Yeah, I mean, you you can get some handicap buses, some activity buses that have like 40,000 miles on them and they're all highway miles, but that 15 years is up and then it's done. You know, I don't want to go too much into the weeds here, but you know, sometimes a school district will sell them early if it's a problem bus. You know, if there's something going on with it and it just keeps going into the shop, it's costing a lot of money, it's costing a lot of time, it's always down, they will auction those off. But yeah, it goes on uh, government websites. I got my bus from publicsurplus.com. There's gov deals. There's tons and tons of auction sites out there to where you can find these buses. And are they a good price? Because like, I mean, my wife and I, we drive around and we see an RV or something like oh man, that'd be fun. Just get one of those, take the kids and drive for a couple of years or something like that, either around Latin America or North America or over in Europe or something like that. But I've kind of looked at the prices a little bit. I'm kind of curious what the difference is between something that is you know, specifically built for this and then something that's converted or custom built for it. Yeah, absolutely. So this lovely pandemic has uh, caused a spike in school bus prices. I bought my bus. It It's an amazing platform. It's a very sought after platform. I have the Cummins 8.3 diesel. I have the 3060 Allison transmission and it's a Bluebird All-American. So it has 36,000 pound capacity. Uh, so it's a very sought after bus. Pre-pandemic, I got it for $3,000. Whoa. <laughs> 
Yeah. So you, you can get them at a good price, but you have to be careful because, you know, and again, I, I, I don't want to go too much into the weeds here. Yeah, of but, course, of course. Yeah. But uh, basically what happens is as these school districts auction off the buses, say this bus had six month old tires, they're not letting that go to auction. They're going to switch off all the bad tires of the other buses, put it on this one. And then away it goes. People don't, I mean, I got my bus for $3,000, but it cost me $3,500 to get new tires. So, you know, the, the, the cost is mitigated because these are commercial vehicles. But once you get them set up, once you get them good to go, like the drivetrain, the tires, they cost a lot of money. Like to repair this 8.3 engine, it, it gets pretty pricey. Not only are the parts fairly expensive, but you're paying $100, $150 shop hours, you know. But when it comes down to, say you get a good bus, you put some new parts on the drivetrain, they are really solid. Then you're able to do something custom with them where my bus, you know, I have about 55,000 into my bus. But at the same time, if, if you built an RV to the level of quality, like again, I have 36,000 pound capacity. So I was able to use inch and a half butcher block. I was able to use three quarter inch plywood for my walls and cabinets. You know, the build quality in these are way, way, way better. You know, I, it varies because all of them are custom, but you can make them so much better than an RV. If somebody watching this or listening to this just Googles class A RV wreck and, and see what happens to those rigs when they get in a wreck. I mean, they're put together with particle board and glue and staples. You know, when I had my class A, I'd take it up to Alaska and you're going down the Alcan and it's like the, the actual body is swaying back and forth. This bus was built to protect kids' lives. Like it has hat channels. It has, you know, the, the structure of this is so solid where there, there are situations where a bus will roll over on its side and a tow truck will come over and tip it back up on its wheels and it drives off. <laughs> where if, if that happened to a class A, not, not so much. Wow. So, and then what would the price points be on something comparable for an RV that you would buy, you know, brand new at one of the shows or something like that? Something of, and of course I'm biased. I just want to kind of understand the, like the perspective, you know, of price points that we're talking about here. I would say probably anywhere from 350 to 500,000. Wow. So even after you did you know, change the tires, made it custom built how you wanted it. You were still talking maybe one-tenth the price, one-eighth to one-tenth of the price. Yeah. And the the important part to mention here, I'm sure we'll get into the money-making part. The intriguing aspect of that is there's an audience of people that want to see this stuff. So I did a series of videos of basically, it's not a time-lapse, but just like short clips of the build process. And I did different iterations, you know, when it was a year in, I did a video when it was a year and a half, two years, three years. Uh, I would say if I took the ad revenue from those videos, I've paid about 70 to 80% of the 50,000 just from producing the videos of the build, you know? So really I probably have about, if we equal out the ad revenue, probably about 10 to 15,000 of my own money into this bus, lots of hours, you know, but of course. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But I think that at the same time there has to be something that you really enjoy about it. Otherwise, you wouldn't do it. So, you know, you can't really say like putting a dollar amount on your time because if it's a hobby or if it's something that you enjoy doing as well, well, how do you put a price on that? Absolutely. This, like I tell people all the time, this is the greatest project in my life. Like to, to date, 
building this bus and I haven't done it all myself. I have some talented friends. And if you are doing a school bus conversion, you need some talented friends or you need the money to pay professionals. But I've had some very talented friends where we'd do like work share. Um, I'd help them out with their social. You know, I'd always, I would always give back to them. But I've had some really talented friends help me with this build. Mm-hmm. Well, that's also an interesting point because doing some type of a barter swap, you know, skills for skills or some type of exchange of value doesn't always have to be monetary. Now, I mean, the name of this show is the Expat Money Show. I mean, yes, we talk about money and we talk about the business and the investments, but there's lots of things that I've done to help other people in the industry and they've exchanged that with me, even legal work. I mean, I've had lawyers who have done legal work for me and I've done other things in exchange for them. It's a a like for like exchange. And if we both agree on it, I don't see that why anyone else should be involved in the process. So I think that those are important things and things that will become more and more common as people understand so many of the problems with the financial system at the moment, and which is definitely a different conversation. But all I'm saying is that there is a lot to barter. And as travelers, we have to exchange what we've got, you know, and if that's in our head or if that's with our hands, I mean, I say go for it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the schoolie community in general is, I mean, the the nomad community in general, really, to be more specific, is is very like that. It's very rare that when work is done or if somebody's helping you out with something, you know, like when the pandemic first started and everybody was doing the sourdoughs and all that good stuff, like I would help family with their social, like I'd film stuff for them and they would give me like two sourdough rolls and we were hanging out in the desert waiting to see if the world's going to melt, you know, like. And, but that's that, that's just one small example of how it is across the board. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about your adventures. And then I want to get into, you know, some of the tips and tricks and things that you've learned along the way, or maybe we can even marry the two. So you've been doing this for what, over 10 years now, traveling around the United States. Have you been traveling through Mexico or Canada or anywhere, or has it just been continental United States? So... I haven't done Mexico. I don't know if I want to bring my bus down to to Mexico. I'd love to do Baja, but just with the weight of this bus, you know, going to the beaches, dealing with that, like I don't want to get myself in that situation. I've been through Canada, did five summers up in Alaska. Uh, so make that drive up and down each year, which was fantastic. I, I missed that drive. I need to make it back up there. But so I, I was doing the nomad thing to where I've been on the road for, it's right out 11 years now. And in between there, I would take trips overseas, spend a month or two overseas. So it really was more of the full-time travel to where if I, I would park my bus at my family's house and then I'd go off to Thailand for two months and then come back. So it's been adventures in the U.S. and the bus, you know, traveled the U.S. and then also overseas because I was fortunate enough to study abroad my sophomore year of college, which really opened my worldview. The, the example I always... I always say is, you know, when I was in Australia, the sun was coming up there, but I realized the sun was setting elsewhere. And it was the first time that that clicked in my head. And it, it opened up a lot of doors to where I realized that I could make that happen. If I just put forth the effort and made things work, it's absolutely possible. I, I, I could be in that place where the sun's setting right now and I could live there and experience that, which I'm sure a lot of your audience, you know, I'm sure they had the same type of moment. Yeah, I think that that's an important realization. And, 
you know, I don't think it really matters when in someone's life they come to that realization. You know, it doesn't matter if you were a kid or if you were 50 years old, you know, but when you decide that you want to make a change and that you can do these types of things too, that it's not, you know, quote unquote, someone special or some special ability or anything like that. And you actually go out there and make the life that you want happen. I mean, that's super powerful. Like that is really, really amazing. So let's talk a little bit about the trips through Canada up to Alaska and things like that. Were you working at the time? Did you have your online business? How were you providing income? I understand that, yes, if you're parking in public land, you might not have to pay, but there's still costs involved for the petrol, for food, for lots of other things. So let's talk about that piece for a moment. Yeah, absolutely. I'll actually back up a little bit to give some context to your question. When I first started on the road, that that very first van that I mentioned, I put it on YouTube as a sales funnel for Craigslist. Like I had no idea about creating content on YouTube, doing anything like that. Basically what happened is that video got shared enough, it got viewed enough to where I was part of the very, very early YouTube partner program. And I got this email randomly saying that my videos were monetized, right? So I, from there, like I literally took a picture with my little Samsung flip phone and sent it to all my friends and family. Like I made 25 cents this last month on YouTube. This is absolutely insane. Like I was so stoked that I was able to make any money by doing something that I love. So that was the genesis of making videos with the second van I got. So when it came time for Alaska, I was making, you know, maybe three to $400 a month on, on, on a good month. But that paid for the fuel for that month and maybe a meal and still just absolutely stoked. I, in, in my mind, I was just like, I can't believe this is happening, right? So when it came time around the Canada time about, what was that, about seven, six or seven years ago, I still had to have a supp- supplementary job. So up in Alaska, I was working for the Alaskan Railroad, which was in partnership with the cruise lines. So we'd get up super early in the morning, a cruise ship would come in, they'd get on the train, we'd be their bartender slash tour guide and talk to them about Alaska, drop them off at Anchorage, because I was down in Seward and we'd drop them off at Anchorage. And then we would clean everything up and then people just flying in to get on the cruise would jump on the train. I'd be a bartender tour guide on the opposite way back home. And so that was that was my days, like anywhere from 15 to 20 hour days working for the railroad just making money that way. But really what that comes down to is I was working service industry jobs because you could you know, go to a new place, make some quick cash. If you work your way up in the bar, you can make some really good cash. And then I would save that money. Once it came time that I had a couple thousand in the bank account, then I'd hit the road again. So that was the first, I'd say three or four years on the road was just working random service industry jobs where one time I was traveling through Florida and it just happened to be March and I was low on cash. And I was like, well, you know what? I'm going to stop by Panama City Beach and see if any bars are hiring and got a job within 15 minutes. And I just parked my van outside the club and sleep in the van, go explore when I was off work. And when I had to work, I just make the quick cash and yeah, just did that for a couple of years. Yep. I understand that completely. When I was in my late teens, early 20s, I was doing similar things save, 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 and then go and travel. I mean, I hitchhiked and backpacked through Latin America for 18 months and didn't work, didn't do anything, just my thumb out and a big red backpack. And that was in like 2002, 2003, or maybe 2003, 2004. And yeah, just 
traveled and just lived off of whatever savings I had. And then when uh, that ran out, I just got another random job and just kept traveling because I didn't, I mean, travel was what was so important to me and I wasn't going to let money get in the way of that. So I just like found a way and same type of thing. If I had to work two jobs and I was working 15, 16 hours a day, I mean, that's what I did because I knew it's like every day that I work and save money is like four days or a week in Guatemala or in Panama or something like that. So like the money would just go so much further. So I could like make that economic decision in my head of sacrificing for reward. And I mean, I still encourage lots of young people to get out there and do these types of things. So many people today, they want to build, you know, the next billion dollar business. And they think that that's the only way that they're going to be able to really get ahead. And it's like, no, I mean, just do whatever you have to do, exchange your goods, your whatever you can offer, you know, and if that's tending bar, if that's cooking in the back of a pub, I mean, go for it. Like the experiences you get to have out of it are amazing. Yeah, that's, that's really intriguing. I actually have a, I, I wonder if there's just a certain type of person that can go to South America and backpack like, you know, the, the chicken or the egg is, is where my thought always goes with that because is everybody inclined to do that if they get a little taste of that lifestyle, like 90% of people would do it? Or is there just a 10% part of the population that they're just called to do that? I'm always wondering about that, especially with the nomad community. Like, is it is it the hashtag van life posts on Instagram that makes them want to do it? Or is it something internally within them that just drives them to do it? Because once once I got that first taste, just, just a little bit of it, I knew I was willing to do whatever it took to make the lifestyle happen. And I, I, I wonder if it's just like they, they just need that little taste to, to actually do it and try it. I think that there is certain degrees of this. I think that, yes, when people get a taste, a lot of them will want more. The problem is that there's so much conditioning in our society and there's so much fear mongering and people don't think that they can do it. They don't believe in themselves. I mean, I dropped out of school when I was 12 years old. So I didn't have this type of conditioning, you know, like I made my own way from a very, very young age, you know, but if you go through state run schools and then university and then, you know, a master's or a PhD or something like that, and you get out of school and you're 30 years old, it's like, you know, and you got all this student debt, are you going to go out there and leave it all behind and start traveling the world? I mean, that's going to be a pretty uphill battle. So I think that, you know, it, it's kind of a combination of all of these different types of things. I don't think that, you know, travel and long-term travel is for every single person on planet Earth. I mean, I think that there are people who are absolutely happy with their white picket fence and the normal quote unquote suburban life. And that's awesome. I'm super happy for those people. That was never me. And it sounds like it was never you either, Chris. So, no, you know, I think, no. you know, at the end of the day, the important thing is like you do you and, you know, make yourself happy as long as you're not infringing on anybody else's rights, no violence, no stealing, you know, man, go out there and live your life to the fullest, do whatever makes you happy. Yeah, I absolutely agree. That's something that through my 20s and traveling that I had to realize is the house with the white picket fence. There's nothing wrong with that. And I'll be completely honest, I'm not proud of it. But it's like in my early 20s, it's like, what are these people doing? Like, do, do they not see that they're alive? Do they not realize they only have 27,000 days to live? Like, what is that? But the thing is, everybody's different. Some people love that security. And it's if, if they're able to achieve that, then I should be happy 
for them for being able to to do that. And that that is something that I had to learn on my own, but it is a very important thing for people to know, you know, just because you're living your life a certain way doesn't mean it's right or wrong. You're just doing your thing. I just hope that people that want to break out, those that, you know, see the quote light at the end of the tunnel, that they're actually able to take that leap. And that's, that's something that we're working on as a, as a team, Tiny Home Tours team to, you know, try and convince people to do it. And I have one last question for you because I'm, I'm curious because it seems like we're of the same mindset a lot. When I was yeah. traveling through my 20s, I had a extreme hatred of money. I, I, I felt wow. like it was a an evil that was stopping me from living the life that I wanted to live. And an example of this, which I, I regret it now with, with business and everything, understanding the power of finances and money. When I was bartending in Denver. I was living in Denver in the van and working at a, a bar. One of the patrons was a very wealthy guy. I see him today, all his Facebook posts, he's hanging out with like Richard Branson. Like literally it's like him hanging out with Rich, Richard Branson somewhere. But he's like, dude, you should listen to these books. Like read these books. If you ever need any coaching, let, let me know. And I was like, dude, I hate money. Like I, I never want to deal with it just because I felt like it was, it was like this thing that just stopped me from living the life I wanted to live, you know? So I just, where it's just, actually kind of the opposite. Exactly. Like the, yeah, exactly. Were, were you of the same mindset at all? Did you, did you go through that at all? No, I've been a very entrepreneurial since day one. I mean, I started working, I started babysitting when I was probably about 10 and saving up money. I started working in fields, farmer fields, picking the ragweed out of bean fields at 12 years old. I saved up cash and started traveling internationally when I was like 16, 17. That's awesome. um, I've had a good relationship with money, but I have had lots of people who have said very similar things to you where there was some type of mental block in their head about money, what it represented. And when they overcame that, then they were actually able to live the life that they wanted because it's, it's not money that is holding you back from doing what you want to do. It's the lack of money. Actually, if you had lots of money, then you would be able to do things. And I think that when people do a voluntary exchange for money, they provide something of value that someone else is willing to pay for. That's actually an excellent feeling. There is nothing wrong with that. People should not be ashamed of that. They should actually be very proud of that. I mean, I am a full-time content creator. This is what I do for a living. I podcast, I write, I run a newsletter, I write books. And every day I get people who are messaging me saying, you know, how I've changed their life. Wow. What an amazing feeling. Like to get a thank you letter from someone where you positively help them because they bought your book, you know, they invested that money. That is excellent. And I, and I hope to hear that the end of your story is as a content creator, you also have that feeling, Chris, because it is really powerful when you're able to help people. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. I because I grew up working on farms, did, did the same thing, had a little lawnmower renovation business that I was running, you know, where again, it was like, it was more about the outside goal of being able to go out and travel than it was anything else. I, I, I didn't make it to the mindset that you just mentioned until I was about 30, 31, maybe. That's, that's when things shifted for me quite a bit. But yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I just, I don't want to say that I wish I would have learned sooner because I spent my 20s basically just full 
nomad, no holds barred, like the the dirtiest of dirtbag traveling, like just give me give me two dollars a day and I'm gonna make this work type travel, which in itself is an experience and just the people you meet and the things you do because you're living that lifestyle was absolutely amazing. So I wouldn't trade my my twenties for anything. But at the same time, now that I'm actually of the business mindset, you know, I'm like, ooh, could have done some damage back then. You know what I mean? No doubt. Well, I remember when I lived in New Zealand, there was eight of us living in a six bed dorm room where every morning I would go and make beds for three hours and that paid for my accommodation for the night. And somehow we were able to get beer and we partied every night. And that's what I did. I lived in New Zealand for a year. In the first three, four months, I lived on the beach in a youth hostel. And it was like, I mean, I had no money, but damn, I was happy. Like I had a great experience. So yeah, in the same way, I could have started building my business 15, 20 years earlier than I did. But at the same time, I mean, what an experience, what an experience just to have no cares and just live your 20s to the absolute fullest. I mean, I'm almost 40 now. I got two kids. I got a wife. We're digital nomad family, expat family. So we're still doing lots of things, but it's a different situation. I'm glad that I had a chance to take, you know, those experiences at the time that I did, because I certainly my wife wouldn't put up with that kind of stuff right now. So also one other point I wanted to make about what you said about, you know, home and white picket fence and these types of things. I had a conversation with my daughter the other day. She's five years old and uh, we're in Brazil right now. We've been in Brazil for six months and she was asking me like, when are we going home? We have a place in Panama. When are we going home? I'm like, baby, we are home. She's like, no, 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 Panama home. I'm like, okay, you have to understand, sweetheart. Home is where the heart is. Home is where mommy and daddy and grandma and your brother are. I mean, if we're together, then we're home. Because I want her to understand that this concept, home is not, you know, four walls and a roof. You know, it's your family. It's your community. It's, you know, the people that you care about. And, you know, anywhere can be home. Home can be with your friends and on the road. I mean, it's it's not a physical location. And at five years old, I want her to, to understand that. So I just was thinking about that as you were talking. And an important point for anyone out there who wants to travel for long term, if you don't get this piece right, you can get, you know, quote unquote, homesick. You can get, you know, missing things. And it adds a lot of complication where if you're just happy in your situation and appreciating it for what it is at that time, you're going to get a lot more out of the experience. Absolutely. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. I mean, it's, it, it's intriguing for me because everybody that I hang out with, you know, everybody at the shop here, besides our carpenter, they're, they're, they're all nomads, you know, we're, we're all the same mindset. So they're, I'm, I'm glad that you went back and, and mentioned that because in my world, in my realm, everybody's a traveler. And it's, it's like we have our little tribe, our little wolf pack, if you will. And we just get each other to a very base level because I'm, I'm, it'll be intriguing to see her mindset as she grows up, right? Especially with how many digital nomads are out there. And, you know, if it's going to be one of those situations where she just picks it up and runs with it and starts doing her own tra travels, because now with remote work and the amount of families on the road, there are kids being raised completely on the road. You know, like their their entire life is in a school bus or RV and they're they're doing their geology lessons and then going to Bryce Canyon and seeing exactly what they saw in their textbooks. Mm -hmm. And what an opportunity. Right. And the amount of people they meet, the different cultures, 
you know, understanding how people work from that base level as a little kid, like new people around all the time and meeting up with old friends and hanging out with them. It's going to be intriguing to see how it all plays out with, with the mindset as this becomes more and more popular. Okay, we're just going to take a quick break. So if you guys haven't joined Expat Money Forum yet, then I don't know what I need to do to get you guys to go on this. The conversations in this forum are just unbelievable. The networking is fantastic. There's so much things being shared with the group that honestly, it's more than just me. It's more than just this podcast. It has grown to a life of its own. We have over 2,000 people in our private group discussing things like immigration, asset protection, travel, food, culture, history, everything about being an expat and going overseas. There's tons of work being done on Plan B residencies, on different passports. We're even talking about SIM cards, international SIM cards, and the best places to get your internet if you're a digital nomad and you're traveling around the world. There are so many things that are being shared by people who are actually in different countries, who are digital nomads, who are expats, who have gone offshore, and there's just so much there. So I'm really excited about it. I hope you can see that I'm really thrilled about this group because it's just more than I ever expected. And and a massive shout out to you if you are part of the group and you are contributing and helping other people who are looking to get where you are. You are an awesome person. I really, really appreciate it. So if you guys want to get involved, if you want to join the conversation, then go to expatmoneyforum.com or on Facebook directly, you can search for Expat Money Forum. You'll find us there. We should come up on the very first page. And yeah, join the group, join the conversation. Lots happening there. Okay, let's jump back into today's interview. So with your community with your tribe do you guys often meet up in certain locations is there like a a track or a a path that people kind of know and you see the same people or the same families over and over again or when you say goodbye to someone is that really goodbye no i mean oh there there was an example not too long ago where somebody that wasn't part of the nomad community like how easy it is for us to say goodbye because it's not like goodbye forever. It's like, we're, we're, we're going to see you again. So it's, it's, there's no tear shed. There's no big gravitose thing when, when they head out because you always see people on the road and it's not uncommon to where you're scrolling through Instagram stories and somebody says, Hey, I'm in Wyoming. Like, Hey, I'm in Colorado. You want to meet up here? You know, that's, that's just a, a common thing. It's just part of our life. The one spot that's fairly set is actually Arizona. They have something out there called RTR, Rubber Tramp Rendezvous, where there's thousands and thousands of rigs that end up out in the Arizona desert. I mean, it's beautiful out there during the winter. You know, it's like 75 and sunny every day. It gets nice and chilly at night, like 60 degrees or so. And yeah, that's where you meet everybody up again once a year. Just to give some more context to RTR, it's uh, again, more public land. BLM land out there, Bureau of Land Management. But at the same time, they have this hybrid thing out there to where they have campgrounds, quote, but you pay $180 and for six months, that's your water, that's your trash, that's your dump station and a place to park. $180 for six months. For six months. Wow. (laughs) So again, going back to the cheap lifestyle and, you know, people finding it as a budget way to travel. But at the same time, it's not like you're skimping out there. Like everybody, like, for example, this last year, there was a group of, I think there was five schoolies and we just made like a little semicircle with a fire in the middle. 
And we were just all hanging out in the desert. Like during the day, we'd be working online, getting our stuff done. And then around three through five o'clock, we'd start coming out of our buses and starting the fire, hanging out, talking, seeing how everybody's day went. And we, most of us have tow cars. So we would, you know, go explore the local area. Somebody's going to the grocery store, you know, just hop in and hang out. Nice. So most people in this community are the digital nomad mindset where they have some type of an online business where they are making an income opposed to what we were talking about before, which was living off of a retirement savings or living off of, you know, some type of job where they had saved up a lot of money. Did you see like a transition from one to the other or were there always both or were they two separate communities? It's been historically two separate communities because I have friends that are retired that are living off retirement and they got into Amway early. So they still get monthly income from that. And I'm not saying that's good or bad. I don't know anything about it, but I know how people get about pyramid stuff. Just just for, for their particular example, they are a retired couple that are, you know, just living cheaply on the road on a fixed income. But a majority of the people that I hang out with and talk to, they have remote jobs. They're working remotely. And, you know, going back to your question, has it shifted? I would say that it's just become more socially normal to where when I first started, the idea of working from your laptop was very foreign. There were people that were doing it, but they knew some artist that needed a VA that was their cousin's friend, you know, and you, you had to actually know somebody where now I'm sure people in your community know about flex jobs and remote.co and, you know, all the different websites, uh, on my team, we have about 18 freelancers. I would say 16 of them, 15 of them are all nomads on the road. So just, just the opportunities out there have shifted drastically. And the pandemic has obviously shifted that as well as companies become more, more aware of the benefits of remote work and that it's actually possible. So yeah, it's, it's been a, it's been a really big shift since 2010, but you know, the last two years have just absolutely accelerated it in a way that I never, yeah, just supercharged it, never could have imagined. Yeah. Well, and I think that's also an interesting point because a lot of people think that they have to start an online business from scratch. I mean, I was talking with a client this week, we were talking about business and they wanted to know if they should start an e-commerce business. I mean, they were a well-to-do family and they're like, oh, should we start something from scratch? And I was like, no, go, go buy someone else's business if you want to own your own business. Empire Flippers, you can go on there. You can buy websites that are already producing an income. If you have a chunk of change, you can buy that and then you do a value add and live off of that money. Or as you said, remote work, go on Upwork. If you can do some type of graphic design or you can manage social media or you're an audio technician, find another podcaster and do that or help with music. Or if you're a lawyer or an accountant or something like that, offer those types of services online. Even doctors, telemedicine has just become so popular at the moment that you can just take whatever, whatever job you had, whatever skill you have, and you can probably offer it online. I mean, I was talking with someone a couple of weeks ago. And it was like they were a plumber and they had figured out how to take their plumbing skills and put it online through basically like consulting. So for people who had more advanced questions. Now, in my mind, before that conversation, that was never something that I would have assumed you could put online, but they did. They figured out a way to do it. So I don't think that people have to reinvent the wheel. You can really take whatever job you have and go online or 
do a business that's already up and running and working, buy that and use that money to travel. You know, you don't need to be Mark Zuckerberg. You don't need to be building the next Facebook or the next social media platform or Larry Page or one of these guys. I mean, it's just not necessary. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, I mean, let's let's be honest. Entrepreneurship is cool right now. So everybody wants to to do that. And I absolutely agree. You don't have to go that route, mainly because we're putting together an online course and we interviewed someone from Flex Jobs. And I was assuming that Flex Jobs was something similar to Upworks, where it was like gig economy, to where the stuff on uh, flexjobsremote.co, these are like legit jobs to where you get a 401k, you get health benefits, you're an actual employee, you know, again, going back to that, that difference between the white picket fence and, you know, being out and traveling, that seems like a nice middle ground to where you can have that solid, stable career. You're working remotely, you're getting benefits, you're getting your 401k. I mean, we're about to buy some land here in Kansas and build a new shop. And one of the guys going in on it, he has a remote job. It's salaried. He has benefits. He has insurance for his family and he's working from his computer. And he's doing very, very well. So it doesn't have to be entrepreneurship or gig economy. There is that middle ground that's coming up right now that gives you the quote stability. You know, nothing's ever really stable. Let's let's be honest. But it, it gives you that that more of a solid track, more of that solid path to to give you some more comfort that you can work these jobs and still work remotely and for us be on the road or live overseas like your your audience. Well, and that's interesting too because. I mean, there's not only one way to do this. You, there's so many different combinations and you can do one thing for a while and then you can go full entrepreneurship. You can go from entrepreneurship backwards. Maybe you figure when you sign off at the end of the day, that's it. You want to be able to go and relax. I mean, I'm still checking emails at two o'clock in the morning most days and responding to comments and stuff like that. I mean, that's not for everybody. I mean, it's a lot of work. So, okay, anyways, let's... Let's go a little bit back on point because I do want to speak to you about what you've learned in a schoolie, what the challenges have been, how to say, like, if someone wanted to do this for themselves, if they wanted to be on the road, you know, what were the things that they would need to know? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. Number one, there's always going to be something happening that will need your attention. There's always something that needs to be fixed with the rig, like, Basically, you build a house in something that experiences an earthquake every time you drive. So there's there's always going to be something. And my point there is you have to have the mindset that it's not the end of the world if something happens. You can't choose what happens, but you choose how you react. There's been many times to where I felt like I was in the Truman Show because one thing would happen and another thing would happen and another thing would happen. Like, this this, this can't be real. But, you know, when I first started this, I... I probably would have flipped out a little bit, especially with the rig this big and all the different components where now I just sit back and I literally smile to myself like, okay, this is the situation we're in and we're going to get through it. So you have to have the mindset that, you know, issues are going to pop up and you have to overcome them. Other than that, I mean, I, I think that's the biggest thing because everybody's so different. Like I know people that love going to the RV parks and living that lifestyle and having the pool and having the power in the water. And I know people that they make my bus look like Disneyland because they have a cot and a little cooler and a little mobile solar thing. And they're out there just having a blast, living incredibly simply in a small rig. You know, I think the main thing, again, is just having the mindset that things are going to happen. You know, they're going to happen, but you just have to work through them. And, you know, living this lifestyle is 
taught me so much about myself in terms of how I react to situations because being on the road has taught me this mentality, which I'm able to use in business. I'm able to use when I'm at the grocery store, I'm able to use it with family in terms of, you know, spending time with them and realizing, you know, I'm saying goodbye to people all the time. Like it helps me when I'm home, I'm hanging out with family. I'm there, I'm present. And being on the road has taught me that for sure. But again, it's, it's just that, that mindset's the most important part in my opinion. Well, I would like to know about your family's reaction, but just one quick point before we get into that is you were talking about the money. Do you have to like mentally prepare yourself that you're going to have to put a certain amount of money back into your rig every single year? Because I think about a set of episodes I did. I did a a three-part episode with sailors who were sailing around the world. And one of the things they said is, Every single year, we put in about 10% of the value of the boat back into just regular maintenance and upkeep. So if it was a half a million dollar boat, they're putting in 50 grand just for maintenance, just to keep it at the exact same level. I was like, wow, that's intense. That's you know a serious amount of money. So I'm curious, do you have the same type of thing with your, t- with your rig? Do you think it through? Is it just a spur of the moment type of thing? How does that look? Yeah. So in terms of maintenance, I'll I'll just put it this way. When I'm down in Arizona, I have a mechanic that I trust there and I'm like, Hey, anything you see, replace it, get it done. Like if it looks like it still has a year left, I don't care. Replace it, get it done, do a full diagnostic in terms of the, the cash flow. So it costs me about a thousand dollars a month to live in the bus. That's my health insurance, vehicle insurance, cell phone, diesel, average food, average, is about $1,000 a month, but my true budget is about $1,200 a month because I'm always putting back that $200 that eventually something's going to go wrong or I'm going to have that $2,400 bill when I make it back down to Arizona and get things replaced. Uh, thankfully for me, like it's something that's been out of mind for the last couple of years because the business is doing pretty well to where you know I don't have to necessarily worry about it. And um, right now, I've been in Kansas more recently because we built a, a shop here where we're converting mini buses into tiny homes. So I've been stationary for a while now, about eight months. So there's been no maintenance. There's been nothing happening with it. And we got a place to park the, the bus. So there hasn't been any expenses whatsoever in, in, in terms of the bus. Any any itching to get back on the road? Do you feel like a... Uh... You miss it or is it a new chapter of your life where you're okay to be stationary for so long? I definitely want to be on the road. But again, I think when I had that mindset shift when I was about 30 into the entrepreneurial side of things to where that is something that is my main priority right now. And the thing is, like, I'm still, I feel like I'm still on the road because it's it's a new spot and people still come by and we'll, we'll film a tiny home with them or report it record a podcast. So we're still getting nomads through, you know, so I still feel connected to the community, but at the same time, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to get back on the road. I'll probably head down to RTR this year and film some tiny homes. I think three of my videographers are going to be down there too. So it's always good hanging out with them and filming with them and collaborating on stuff. So I am excited to get back on the road, but yeah, it's, it's just been such a mindset shift to where the main priority is the entrepreneurial side of things. And it's, it's intriguing. And this is a question for you. When I was in my 20s, not really making that much money, I always thought that in my 30s, like I, I, I don't know if this is self-fulfilled prophecy or not, but in my 20s, I was like, I'll just be 
dirtbag traveler. In my 30s, I'll start concentrating on money. In my 40s, I'll concentrate on having a family. Did, did you ever have that mindset or did, did it just naturally come for you? I don't think I was ever that purposeful. I mean, I was just out there partying from teenage years till about 26. I mean, there was a good portion of my life where I was just partying. And then things just naturally shifted to on my interest in entrepreneurship and investing. And I got, I used to trade derivatives and build up a huge portfolio of investments. And I did that for seven years. And then I really got into entrepreneurship after that. And like I said, I'm almost 40 now. And like, I don't think I was ever so purposeful where I'm like, okay, the twenties are this, the thirties are this, the forties are this. When I met my wife, we fell in love and we decided that we wanted to have a child. And that's what we did. we we were living in Abu Dhabi at the time. We flew over to the Seychelles in Africa. We got married. We came back to the Middle East and decided to get pregnant and have a baby. And my son was born here in Brazil, what, three, four months ago. And it was just like, thank you very much. Thank you very much. I've got uh, almost five years difference between my kids. But, um, you know, when the time was right for something, that's when we did it. We didn't, we weren't so so like purposeful of like, okay, next we're going to do this. Now we're going to do that. I mean, everything just kind of fell into place naturally. Now looking backwards, yeah, I can join all the dots of why this happened, but I don't have, but I didn't have some type of master plan at the time. So I don't know if that's an answer to the question or not, but that's the reality. Oh, it's absolutely an answer. Yeah. So I want to, I want to understand your family a little bit with your your folks or your siblings or your community, you know, did they understand what you wanted to do when you first started traveling? Do they understand what you're doing now? Do you have a good connection with them? Were they, have they ever come on the road with you and seen it for themselves? What's that relationship been like? Because I think that so many people don't understand what, how their family will react to something like you and I do. Yeah. So again, going back to that, when I told my grandma when I was seven that I was going to live out in the woods with with my dog and you know do do that thing, I've I've always been kind of that black sheep of the family. I'm I've just kind of always done my own thing. And then once I studied abroad and you know wouldn't shut up about traveling, and then studied abroad again and it was even more so. I don't think it was a surprise when I bought my van and hit the road. This this was before, you know phones were how they are today where you have a decent camera. But what I did, I bought a photo camera, a digital one is the very first camera I ever bought. And then just wrote out my travels. Like I was keeping a journal and I went back and added the pictures and I printed it out for my friends and family so they could see what I was doing on the road. So I I don't think it's ever been anything outside of the scope of just the way I am. I, I think they were normal. You know, they just thought it was normal. The, the question of before to now, like before they, they're just like, oh yeah, he's just off doing his thing to where now where they see it, you know, how it's manifested as a business and how, you know, I'm just completely involved in it. I always have been, but how that manifested over time. I mean, I'm, I'm just so lucky to be born at the right time and be born in the United States to where I can buy a $3,000 commercial vehicle and then have the infrastructure to build it and have the parts. You know, I, I, I just feel so incredibly fortunate to be doing this because I, I've always had that mindset. It's just this particular schoolie, the school bus conversion, this nomad community allowed me to be the person I am 
And it manifested in this way to where it was, it was always internally me. And I think my family really understands that in terms of, you know, people coming out in the road, my, my brother is, you know, he's a small town guy, never really traveled much. You know, I think the first time he saw the ocean, he was like 21 type thing. Uh, he's a truck driver, has a family with kids, you know, say I need to go to Arizona and I'm back home visiting family. I'll buy his plane ticket, take care of the food and the diesel and everything. I'm like, Hey dude, come with me for a couple months. Not, not months, sorry. Uh, a, a week, you know, now, cause he has twin girls and a, and a new baby boy. So his, his trips have been shortened, but yeah, he, he'll come out on the road with me. Um, you know, friends will fly out and we'll, we'll take a little road trip and they have to go back to work, you know, so depending on their vacation and all that. Uh, so, you know, the, the friends and family that I went to college with, my, my family will come out and travel with me from time to time. Nice. That's good to hear. I have had certain people who have come out and traveled with me over and over again. And other ones, even though I've invited them, just, I don't know what it is. Some type of a mental block, something, you know, we, we kind of discussed these things earlier, just have never made it. I mean, it's just so random and weird to me. It's like, you guys have an opportunity. I mean, I'll handhold you through the entire thing and haven't made it. So I don't know. It's it's weird. I, I get it as well. You're in a beautiful spot. You have everything set up. All I have to do is get a ticket and they just don't do it. Well, and it's the same people who will, I'll get messages on like a Facebook post or something like, oh, you're so lucky. It looks so beautiful. And I'm like, lucky. I mean, I made this happen. You know, you can make this happen too. I don't have, I don't have any special luck. There's nothing special about me. I mean, I'm just purposeful about my decisions and over time they've led to this type of a life. But certainly I understand also your other point about how fortunate you feel to be able to build a business in something that you completely love. And the fact that you were doing it for so many years before you actually built the business is exactly the same as me. I mean, exactly the same. I was living in expat. I was living this lifetime lifestyle for years and years and years and years and years, and then decided to start doing content about it and start talking about it and what I had learned and my experiences and have developed this whole community around that of people who also want to do the same thing. So it's like, okay, I don't have any three letter words after my name. I don't have, you know, my PhD or some type of graduate degree that specializes in this. No, I mean, I've gone out there and I've done it and people pay me based on my experiences and the things that I've done in my life because they actually respect the authenticity of it. And it sounds to me, it's exactly the same as you. I can hear the passion in your voice when you talk about these types of things. So it's a very interesting world. And, and, and I also feel very blessed and very grateful that we are able to earn an income and support our families and things uh, from this. Uh I know how that goes. I uh like like I said, I made twenty-five cents that uh that first month and basically you'll you'll find out soon with uh with YouTube that it takes a hundred dollar threshold to for them to send you a check. It took me like nine months to get to a hundred bucks. And that was like, you know, the the twenty-five cents coming in, I spent probably thirty hours figuring out cameras, figuring out editing gear, but I was more than happy to make less than a penny an hour just because it was like so cool that I, that I was able to do that. I mean, as an entrepreneurial lesson, if you will, I mean, that is super important because there's so much time that you need to devote to this. You can't expect to get it the very first time. I mean, 
think about someone goes to university for four years to learn how to do something. Four years, they don't make a penny. And then someone wants to move into entrepreneurship and then gets discouraged because they're not making money in the first week or the first month. It's like, no, I mean, you might have to do this for years as you figure this out. And building up skills. I mean, I have so many random little skills that I never thought that I was ever going to have to learn to be able to run a successful business. I mean, I still do a lot of my own graphic design. Not that I can't afford a graphic designer to do it, but because it takes so long to get, submit something and then you know articulate into words what I want them to do, then three days later they send it back to you, and then it's not right, and then you can't change it, and you want you know one word, it takes another twenty. I'll just do that stuff myself. So I've had to learn how to be a graphic designer. I've had to learn how to do basic audio editing or video editing. I've had to learn how to, you know, run a thousand and one different pieces of software. It's like, it can be so full on, but I think that that's an important lesson that people have to understand. It takes time to build up this skill set so that you can build a business online to make money. And if you're not willing to do those types of things, then you should certainly stick with what we were talking about earlier in the episode and just do a remote job and just do that. When there's nothing wrong with that, I mean, the point is to go out there and enjoy your life, but you got to give yourself time. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, audio app called Clubhouse. You ever jump on there or heard of that? I've heard about it. I have not been on it, but so, yeah. I love that app, but there are basically context here. Imagine a podcast that you're able to participate in. They have like the stage where people are talking back and forth. It could be topics from international travel to RV life, to meditation, to music, to Bitcoin, to crypto, the the whole gauntlet, anything that you're interested in, they have rooms of people talking. And I've always noticed that the, the not so honest, the scammers on there are the ones that saying in one month, we'll teach you how to make six figures, you know? And it's, it's like there, there is an audience for that because it's the gullible people that just want it quick. Whereas, you know, it really does take the time to build the skills, to build the understanding so you can, you know, prop up that business. You can keep it going because you've learned these skills. You've learned the hard skills. You've learned the soft skills. You've learned how to hire people. You've learned how to fire people. It's just intriguing that, Everybody wants it all at once, but when it comes down to it, a lot of people aren't willing to put the work in because we've, we've just given so many people opportunities, freelancers to work with us, you know, where it's, it's like, we'll have an hour long zoom meeting with them. We'll go through the gear they need, how to film sample videos, not only my head videographer and editor showing them exactly what to do, but giving them example videos of what we're looking for. And the stuff we get back is just the direct opposite. Like they didn't even look at it you know, or, or they, or they just won't film or they won't edit. Like we'll give them an edit and it just sits there for two months. Like I've, I've learned that there's a drastic difference between those that take action and those that think about taking action. Like it, it feels good to them to think about taking action. So they stay in that realm, but it, it seems like there's a special type of person that will take action regardless and try and get it figured out. Oh, absolutely. It reminded me, so one of the things that we talk a lot about on this program is second languages, speaking multiple languages. I've had over and over and over again, people who will watch YouTube videos about how to learn a language, how to do these types of things, but they won't do them. 
It's like the, it's like, it's always like a preparing same thing with the expat. I've had so many people who will listen to content about how to be an expat, but won't buy the plane ticket and go out there. You know, it's like people will watch videos on how to be an entrepreneur, but won't start a business. I mean, you need to actually get to a point where you do it and start, stop talking about it. Stop watching YouTube videos about it. Actually go out there and make something happen because that is the real education is using your hands, using your brain and problem solving, being creative and working through these types of things. No one can do that for you. Yeah. It makes them... my, I think a lot about this because again, one of our main goals with what we do is convince people, those that want to live on the road to actually do it. And what I've kind of learned, well, I don't want to say I learned my theory because who, who knows what it actually is when you're dealing with people, right? But I think it makes people feel good that they're moving towards something they want. So it, it gives them, you know, that, that internal gut feeling that, you know, I need to prep, I need to do this. So it, it keeps their mind busy on what they want to do, but they're not really willing to take the leap and make it happen. It's just, it's almost like a, like a hobby for them to dream about it. And I mean, the thing is that, that maybe that's the escape that they need from work and from, from everything going on in their life. They, they, they get to daydream about it. Cause I mean, you, if, if you think about the lottery, I think people buy lottery tickets of, for the dream of winning the lottery, all the things they're going to do. So that, that dollar or two they're putting over the cash register isn't about actually winning. It's about the dream of it possibly happening. And, you know, you mentioned, don't talk about it back in college. One of my roommates, very, very interesting guy. His favorite saying was don't talk about it, be about it. So if I ever said anything, you know, all the things I'm going to do, the places I want to travel, he with, without missing a beat every single time, He'd say, don't talk about it, be about it. And I really do think me meeting him when I was like a freshman in college was one of those transformational moments where I was like, well, if I say I'm going to do something, I guess I got to do it. Absolutely. So you've said one word twice throughout this conversation, convince people, convince people. Do you think that you can actually convince someone of anything? I do. I do. I, 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 I don't think it's going to be a one conversation thing. I think that you have to show them and not just tell them. One of my remote jobs was an ISA for a real estate brokerage. And if you don't know what that is, I would highly suggest you Google it because they can't keep people on. Brokerages are always looking for people. But in a negotiation book that I read, Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss, there's a section in there where if somebody says you're right after you try and explain something to them, you lost because they're just appeasing you. They've already made their mind up. But what I think my theory is you have to continuously present the option. Not only that, on top of that, you have to show action of it actually happening. And it's it's not that the pyramids weren't built in one day. You know, it's block after block and eventually they were finished you know, after a very long time. And I believe that convincing people is the same way and you're not going to convince everybody. You know, it's, it's a shot in the dark. But I do think multiple touches, multiple times of them entering that particular reality in their head and then the action on top of that just builds up over time. See, for me, I never think about it like convincing. 
I think that there are certain people who want to do things and certain people who will do things, and I'm just there to support them along the way. I'm not here to convince anybody that expat living is the best kind of living or it's the best vehicle for more freedom in their life. I believe it is. I think that this is an excellent vehicle if someone is trying to actively have more freedom in their life. But if you, if you don't get that, then I'll never be able to convince you. That's why I'm not trying to appease every person in the world. I mean, I run a successful podcast. We get a lot of people that listen to this, but I'm not trying to get every person to listen to this. It is a really, 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 really small subset of people who is going to gravitate towards my content. So that's why, yes, we deal a lot with the mindset, but we deal a lot with the tips and tricks because I want to help people with that missing link, like whatever that piece of information is, whatever that thing is to make their dreams come true. But I can't convince them that they should have this dream or that this is the right way to do it, or you should think the same way as I do. I mean, I just want to be there to support people. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And when, when I mentioned a shot in the dark, what I meant by that, and I should have been more specific. So you're, you're absolutely right. And I mentioned it earlier in the podcast, like convince those that are actually on the fence. Like I'm fully aware that the people that watch our videos, 90% are armchair travelers. They're, they're never going to live this lifestyle. It goes back to that lottery ticket example, but that 10%. And when, when I mentioned a shot in the dark, what I meant by that is the shot in the dark, that it's actually one of those people that, you know, they're, they've went up the roller coaster and they're about to go down, but they just need that little push. That's, that, that's what I meant. Cause I'm, I'm fully aware that a lot of our audience, it, it is just that daydream. It's something that, you know, it kind of, it's their escapism, but there, there has to be that 10%. There has to be that five, 1% that you just have to keep building that up. You have to build their mindset up to where they finally get to the point to where, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to live this lifestyle because, you know, there, there's multiple times we're out on the road and we're sitting, you know, around the fire and we're just talking amongst ourselves and just that the story will come up from somebody where they're like, yeah, I just wanting to do this forever and such and such happened and I decided to do it. And for everybody on the road, there had to been that moment, right? Like there, there had to be that moment to where they were up on the roller coaster and they got pushed off. And whether it was internal, whether it was something from, you know, something we're doing, which is grandiose, who knows if we're actually even doing anything, you know, I'm not, not, not saying that we're actually getting people out there, but the goal is to get those people that are just right on the fence to, to live a lifestyle that I absolutely love, a lifestyle that I can't believe that I get to live every day, hopefully convince them, you know, go, go, going back to that convince piece that they can take that little extra step and make it happen. That makes sense. That makes sense. All right. I want to shift gears because we are getting close to our time here. I want to understand more about the business that you're building right now. So you said that you've been stationary for eight months. You're now building a business, which is going to be converting these. Talk us through this. What does this look like? Why did you decide that this was the path that you wanted to go through and you know, how is this going to help people? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll start with saying the the YouTube channel and more recently the Facebook page uh, monetized ads and we do partnerships with companies, which has been fairly lucrative. Uh, we're doing really well with that, but at the same time, that's a social media platform. We don't own the contacts. We don't own the subscribers. You know, we're, we, we have a middleman between us and the customer, which is a place you never want to be, but we're going to ride it out 
as long as YouTube keeps conquering the world, we're going to be doing okay, you know? But I'm fully aware at any time that can change. So, you know, going back to the original van, actually, I think it, I think it was the second van. I was listening to a podcast or something and the question popped up, what would you do if money didn't matter? And my, my thought process was, well, get more people on the road. So I actually was thinking about going back to grad school to be a high school counselor, to be that, that middle guy before they went off to college or whatever. And this, this was just like, I was like 20, 21 or something. You know, I, I really didn't have a concept of not people that are that young don't have concepts, but for me personally, I didn't have a concept of how that would play out long-term until I shadowed somebody in the high school counseling world, but it was getting people on the road. So the original manifestation of this business was converting mini schoolies and then putting the freelancers in the mini schoolies to then film for us. So their quote rent would be to vlog on our secondary channel. And then they would provide like, if they're editors, they provide two edits a, a month for their rent. If they're videographers, same, same thing, just bringing a bunch of people on. That didn't go so well, because it turns out when people don't own the vehicles, they don't treat them like their own. So during the buildup of building these mini schoolies, I reached out to companies because we have, you know, the distribution through the social channels and found a, a niche to where we can record the builds, implement their products in the builds, get them cheaper free. And being that we have the system in place, we have the carpenter, we have the shop, we have the metal fab guys, they're all here. The foundation's there. So what we did is we're basically making a custom mini schoolie that we raise the roof on it. We put a bed lift in the back. So it's a unique product that not many people can replicate. And we get the discounted gear that can go into it that just goes back into our bottom line. So that was the manifestation of this particular business. And it's more of a way to get into the physical world instead of being dependent on the social platforms, even though, you know, things are going well with that. But if you think you think your money's coming tomorrow and you just live your entire life like that, you're going to get surprised from time to time. And I would rather not be surprised. You know what I mean? So it's basically hedging our bets, staying within the realm of what I know and what I love, definitely keeping it along that way. And, you know, as we keep building the team on YouTube, my admin team and I, um, I want to give them skin in the game. I want to give them 10% of the next business we create together. I mean, we, we've talked about it. We're getting some back-end stuff figured out. We're putting a course together. Like I said before, we have a coloring book coming out. But once we get even killed and we're able to take a step back, we're going to develop a business together and utilize our existing social channels to promote the business. But what we're thinking now is more of an influencer marketing business. But again, with the shop back right behind me here, we already have connections from all these companies that we're already we're implementing their products, we're putting their media out, we're tagging, we we have the relationships built up already. So it's a business that, and it, of course the the admin team has to agree to it. That's where I'm leaning, but we're gonna have a sit down once we're, you know, able to get caught up. But that's that's, that's where we're at now. So is this like product placement 2.0 type of thing? So instead of like in big movies and things, they're in YouTube videos and as you're filming the the builds of these, then they see those types of products in the videos. Do I got that right? Yeah. And then there's also another component that we have relationships with nomads on the road. So we can, this, this new shop we're going to build, we'll also have a content 
basically to be content production where we'll have a podcast studio. We'll have an area for reviews of products because right now we're getting probably five to six emails a day from different companies wanting us to feature their products. And that's not including like the, the email on our biggest platform, which is the YouTube channel with 800,000 subscribers. That goes to a talent agency because I want them to negotiate for me. So that's not even including the emails coming into our main social platform. So we can directly get the gear, become middleman, help the content creators, you know, hone in on what the brand wants and then produce content that way to where we can have people come by Kansas or we can ship the gear to them, have them create the content. And then we almost become like an influencer marketing company. That's amazing. Well, one product placement shout out that I need to do is I notice your Berkey in the background. I got a huge Berkey at my house in Panama and we even travel with a Berkey now as digital nomad family. We now bring it on the road with us. Absolutely. These things are amazing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's that's a perfect example. Like I'm an affiliate for them and I'm sure you're... I'm not, but you guys, if someone's listening to this, go get a Berkey, but go through Chris's link because these things are amazing. Use Chris's link. They're amazing. They're, they're fantastic. Yeah, the, the Berkey, I mean, everything in my bus, one of the reasons why I was able to get the cost down to 55000 is because I did work with companies and featured their gear and became affiliates for them, which paid on top of that. So it's basically just playing the social media game right now with a full mindset, knowing that it can end at any time. So we're just trying to branch off and be smart about it and not just think because we're making good money today that it's going to happen tomorrow. And just continuously look for for what's next while at the same time keeping within our scope and not overloading ourselves with with work. I understand that completely. Brilliant. Chris, I love today's conversation. Thank you so much for your time. If my listeners want to get a hold of you, if they want to find out more about what you do, where can we send them? Oh goodness. So we have Tiny Home Tours. It's just Tiny Home Tours on Instagram, tinyhometours.com. My personal brand is the off-grid schoolie theoffgridschoolie.com and the offgridschoolie on Insta. We have Zeppelin Travels where we were putting people in the rigs. But, you know, again, like, like I mentioned before, we're going to be slowing down on that and probably sell off a portion of the fleet. But that may or may not still be up. It might be up for another couple months. But basically, we're going to take that, that platform and when we build the new shop and the new content studio, just film out there, show the build, do reviews on products and all that good stuff. But right now, it's Zeppelin Travels on Instagram and zeppelintravels.com. Nice one. Well, hopefully I'll come out and see the new studio. We'll film some more content together. Hey, bud. You're more than welcome. Nice one. All right. I will talk to you soon. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, bud. So I have an ask for you today. If you're enjoying this podcast, what I want you to do is go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you want to leave us a five-star review, even better. If not, tell us why. We are really doing our best to make this show the absolute best it can be to help as many people to go offshore and inspire entrepreneurs and investors and business owners to move their businesses abroad. There's so much to be had in this industry. I love doing this work and I love doing this podcast, but we want to get the message out there to more people. And the best way to do that is with reviews. So if you have ever gotten one good tip, one good thing from this show, if you enjoy listening to us every single Wednesday or whenever you listen during the week, then please take 30 seconds out of your day, go out there, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It actually makes a big difference for the show, for the visibility, and really helps get the word out there. So I appreciate that. Thank you so much, everyone, for your support. 
This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.